Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're learning about community authority and the various ways to authentically build community authority within place-based collaborative work. Joining us for this chat about building community authority is Matt Bigger of Connected to Place, Vanessa Morrison of Open Design Collective, and Sean Washington, who is a naturalist at the Martin Park Nature Center. Together they share what they've learned while working with the Edwards Property Collaborative, a large land trust in Northeast Oklahoma City. We learn what happened when the original project process changed direction to better address the community's history and desires, and how design tools like the Black Space Manifesto have served the group in rebuilding community trust. Moderating this chat is Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splansky-Juster. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast with the Collective Impact Forum. I'm Jennifer Slansky-Jester, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, and thank you so much for tuning in today. We have three wonderful guests joining us today to discuss establishing community authority in place-based collaborative work through work on the Edwards Property Collaborative in Northeast Oklahoma City. Joining me today, we have Vanessa Morrison, Sean Washington, and Matt Bigger, who will be engaging in today's chat. So I would love to bring the three of you all into the conversation. One at a time, I'd love to have you each introduce yourself to our listeners, share a little bit about yourself and the focus of your work. I can start. Hi, thank you all for having us here. My name is Vanessa Morrison, and I am an activist, an educator, and an impact planner who works on spatial and social justice-related issues here in Northeast Oklahoma City and Oklahoma City communities surrounding the area, and uh, my, I guess my full-time role is at the University of Oklahoma as the Associate Director of the Institute for Quality Communities at the College of Architecture, and I'm also the co-founder of Black Space Oklahoma and Open Design Collective, and through those two platforms, we support spatial needs in Black communities. Welcome, Vanessa, and I'll introduce Sean Washington. I am a naturalist and ecologist at Martin Park Nature Center, which is an environmental learning center here in Oklahoma City. Uh, the only one kind of of its type that has a actual staff there. And what I do is I teach people about wildlife around them, uh, create programs for people to come and engage with different aspects of the natural world, and also teach people how to attract those into their own yards and see Oklahoma's wildlife near where they live. Great, thank you, Sean and Matt. Great, Uh, thanks for having us here. Uh, I'm a strategy consultant, researcher, and writer based in San Francisco. Uh, In 2016, I started my own consulting firm, Connected to Place. Uh, My specialty is designing and facilitating uh, place-based cross-sector collaboratives for social change. Um, So in 2018, um, how I got to meet uh, eventually Sean and Vanessa. I uh, started at the Collective Impact Convening actually in Austin. Um, there I presented um, on a collaborative I've been working on called San Francisco Children in Nature. 
uh, with one of the leaders from that collaborative. And I also met Louisa McCune, who is the executive director of the Kirkpatrick Foundation in Oklahoma City. So she and a group of animal care professionals who were attending the conference were interested in starting a statewide collective impact initiative uh, to end youthless, uh, excuse me, uh, needless euthanasia of shelter animals in Oklahoma. And I helped build that collaborative, which is now called Common Bonds and has a director and a lot of operations. So the Edwards Property Collaborative is the, the third collaborative um, that I've worked on in Oklahoma and with the support of the Kirkpatrick Foundation. Um, and it's been really meaningful and rewarding to work with people like Vanessa and Sean on this Urban Land Use Collaborative. Welcome. And I actually had no idea that the connection came through with the Collective Impact Forum convening a couple of years ago down in Austin. Uh, thank you for the shout out and so glad to help folks convene and meet each other. But today we are focusing on the work in, uh, in y'all community. So, and we're going to be talking about how collaboratives can establish community leadership within their work. And another way to describe that is establishing community authority. So for this discussion, how do you define community authority? Yeah, I, I think a good um, summary in how I see community authority is really creating space for community members to be a part of the process. And too often, with my planning being, excuse me, my background being in planning um, and just in the built environment sector, too often historically and even presently, professionals go into communities and they kind of have these plans already or these um, perceptions of what should be done and how issues should be tackled and how solutions should be developed. And with that approach, there really is an exclusionary dynamic that keeps community members from being a part of the process and how their spaces are shaped, planned, designed, and informed. And so to me, community authority can't exist if there's not space to create, if there's, if there's not spaces created for them to be a part of the process and for them to lead the process as well. Yeah, we'll dig in a little bit more, of course, to how community authority became central in the Edwards Property Collaborative work. But before we talk about that specifically, could you tell us a little bit more about the collaborative more broadly and sort of the story of how that work has come together? The collaborative was, was brought together uh, to shape the future of this 135 acre urban nature property that we referred to as the Edwards property. Uh, and there's also three historic buildings on it. Um, so there was a group of uh, folks, the Nature Conservancy of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City Zoo, uh, the, the Oklahoma City Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, and a couple of individuals, um, professionals who were interested in, in trying to do something good with this property for you know, the, the Oklahoma City and the broader region. Um, so they had been in discussing things, uh, I think mostly in 2020, and decided that they wanted to you know, involve more people and start to, to build towards something with this. I should say that the property uh, was and still is currently owned by the state of Oklahoma. So part of this dynamic has been trying to find an entity to acquire the property so that it could become an asset uh, for the city and, and the nearby communities. Uh, so the, in starting in 2021, um, I, I was brought into the conversation, as I mentioned earlier, through the Kirkpatrick Foundation, because the interest was to try to grow this and structure the collaborative more, um, to have 
you know, more organizations involved, to have community leaders involved, and to develop a vision for the property. So then that vision might help attract someone to, um, to buy the property and to turn that into reality. Um, so pretty soon, uh, well into 2021, we established a steering committee for this group. Uh, we started having monthly meetings. Um, and the interest in partnering with the community started to, to grow from the very start. Yeah, so tell, let's dig into that a little bit more. Tell me more about what led you to understand and follow through on elevating the, the role of community and community leadership and putting community authority at the center of how you approached this work. I can start a little bit here and then you know, Vanessa, feel free to, to chime in, but since I, I was here, you know, a little bit before Vanessa, but not much uh, in terms of getting involved in this collaborative. Uh, we did, there was three community leaders originally on the original steering committee. And it became very clear um, from, from, very, from the first or second meeting that we had that there was a need to share the history of the community and the context and, and the, the history of disinvestment um, and, and actually quite a bit of of broken trust and deep frustration um, with, with other entities outside of the community. Um, so, you know, we, that it seemed very important to spend time and space um, for that to be discussed and for the other members of the steering committee to, to learn more about that. Um, another thing that kind of steered it towards um, more community leadership and more community authority was um, an ally on the committee um, who it was a member, a leader in the school district. And so she pretty soon into the conversation said, listening to the original plan for how we were gonna do community listening sessions, um, said this was gonna be going too fast, was not gonna bring the community along with us, so we needed to slow down. Um, and so that led us into having you know, some more hard, honest conversations um, about the structure of the collaborative, um, who would be involved, um, that we needed more community members on it. Um, and, and so much of this centered around the you know, kind of concerns around we're bringing people together, but you know, and Vanessa mentioned this earlier, is there already plans? Is there already been decisions made? Or is this really authentically engaging communities? So we realized we've got to slow down and, and do things differently if we were gonna do this right. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, you know, a little bit of context about the area. So Edwards property is located in Northeast OKC in Ward 7. And historically speaking, this is a very underserved, marginalized, and disengaged community. And in the past few years, recent years, there is almost what a lot of people are describing this renaissance happening where investment development is coming in. There's interest in the area for the first time in some cases and context for the first time in, in many, many years. And so there is this fear that um, community members are not going to be, again, a part of the process and how their spaces are planned for. And also, historically speaking, there have been a lot of spatial and social harms that have been inflicted on this community as it relates to urban renewal, gentrification, cultural erasure, displacement, and more. And so you have this dynamic where the, the past has been very painful, and now there's a surgence of activity and interest in the area, and people are fearful that if something happens, they may be harmed again and pushed out and displaced again or not be able to remain in the community or lose their identities and connections to this area. And so when projects are happening in Northeast OKC, it can be a very 
sensitive situation because if people don't feel like they're a part of it or they don't feel like they can be informative of the process, they fear that something bad can happen again. And so I, I think it's really, that was a pivotal moment in the collaborative to stop, pause, and really think about how do we intentionally engage community members so we're not adding to the harm and trauma that's already been inflicted on this community for years and years and years. Yeah, and I think the, the moment that really strikes me in, with all that important background that Vanessa just shared, we had you know, the, she and the other, and the other couple uh, community leaders who were, who were in the initial part of the steering committee, um, it was definitely like this, this frustration that was starting to grow and tension. And, and so we had an, like an offline conversation and just trying to say, hey, we're, let's, let's slow down and talk about everything. And I remember one of the, the community leaders saying, well, something's just not right here. And we had to kind of unpeel what, what, was, what was meant by that. And, and part of it was, you know, my own role. Like, who is this outside consultant? What, is, what are you doing? Are you here to, are you making the decisions for this? Or am I here, you know, on behalf of the foundation or behalf of the city um, to, to, to steer this towards a desired outcome? Uh, again, that sense of like, this is being, we're not really part of this conversation or are, are you going to really make us part of this conversation? So, um, you know, I, those kind of moments um, in, in a collaborative journey, uh, I found was particularly important. And it was really important that we try to listen to that and, and do things differently. I want to thank you, Vanessa, for that added context and, and Matt for naming some of those tensions and, um, and sort of your role and how you experienced that. And then how you all came, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how you all came together to shift gears a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I want to bring Sean into the conversation. Sean, tell us a little bit how you got involved and why this project is important to you. So I got involved where I was invited to one of the early meetings of the group. Um, not early as in the beginning of it. I was around like the middle stages of it. Um, I got invited by a member at the time. And they said, oh, they'd love to hear your input on the ecology of the area and learn more about what wildlife is there and the opportunities for it to be more for wildlife. And I, being someone who lives right next to the property that we're, we were talking about, um, was very intrigued to know that there was a, even a project going on. I was already just entranced with the idea of being there because huge property with tons of wildlife and Every day I'd see something going in or out of there that was interesting. Like one time we saw beavers going underneath the road um, to the park or to that area. And and so I got involved by talking more about the ecology and the environmental um, importance of this area. I was also helping with directing a lot of the ideas that we had in the group around what to do and what options we had. Um, well, not really directing them, like deciding what happens or what doesn't, but sort of helping guide the groups and helping us all see that we're trying to have the same idea, or if we aren't having the same idea, where it's separating and sort of coming to terms with it. From talking with you earlier, Sean, it seems like you also feel that there's a deeper calling to this work for you. Could you tell us and tell the listeners a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So being a naturalist and a black naturalist from Oklahoma City, especially the northeast side of Oklahoma City, that is an extremely narrow list. Um, and it's almost non-existent, uh, to be completely frank about it. Um, and the main reason is there's not much access to experiencing nature and learning that you might even enjoy being outdoors and bird watching and the sciences of like being outdoors. And a lot of that, because there's not many experience or chance to experience that, many people lose out on the potential knowledge of finding out, oh, I love butterflies. And that's surprisingly a common one that many people don't realize is their thing. Um, so it really is important to me that we find a way to share this space with the community because at the current state, it is completely blocked off from the community that it sits in the middle of. Um, it's very well guarded in the sense of there are security cameras and a straight line to the uh, police department if someone is seen on them. So it's, I think that that raises more of the issues because a lot of the outdoor sciences have been historically excluding um, minorities. And since it's in a majority, min mostly minority um, region of the city, and it's specifically excluding anyone, which has its own set of issues, I feel like that only furthers the issue and only makes it worse, especially being a place so biodiverse and so beautiful that we need to share this. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Sean. Thank you so much for weaving that into our conversation. So now that we have all three of uh, the background and the three of your perspectives that you're bringing, tell us more about the practices that you started doing to move your collaborative to be more centered and led by community. One of the things that was done that I personally enjoyed in the collaborative after I had joined in, where did that February, about May, um, was that intentionally made every meeting or every sort of, um, if we were, since it was COVID and things were trying to make sure everyone's safe, we tried to ensure everyone was very community driven. We had a few different ideas for places to meet and, and we ended up striking a few of them out because it's not centered in the community. So why would we meet in a place that doesn't have to do with the place we're trying to help? Um, and so I think that's really, really important that we made that in every move that we made was how is a community affected or are they impacted by what we're, doesn't seem like something happening to them, something happening with them. Thanks, Sean. And I think, um, Matt, you were going to add to that as well. Yeah, and I like how Sean brought up the, the location considerations. And, and uh, yes, we, a, lot of it, a lot of our meetings were on Zoom, but when we did have that, that opportunity. We definitely wanted to center it in the, in the community. Um, Broadly speaking, I think there were a number of, of things we did try to change, um, and, and I would kind of categorize them along the lines of structure, process, and outcomes. So as far as the structure of the collaborative itself, we talked about the fundamental governing entity was the steering committee, right? And so that initially was more institutional leaders and non-community members, and we shifted that over the first couple of months to be half and half. So to be half community members, leaders, and half outside the community, um, city stakeholders, and so forth. And I do, there was a person in particular, Katie Hawk, who was the director of communications at the Nature Conservancy, and she really took it upon herself to go out and 
recruit and network to try to find uh, interested community leaders and members. She found Sean, for example, and, and they connected very over their mutual interest in wildlife and biodiversity. Um, and then as Sean mentioned, we established co-chairs for the steering committee and he's the first, one of the first two co-chairs and he's, he partners with an institutional leader uh, who runs the Oklahoma City Parks and Trails Foundation. Uh, we also established a community engagement liaison position and that was another member of the community to, to serve in that role. So those are like the structural changes. And then as far as the, the process goes, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times and we definitely changed the time frame, right? The original plan that I had constructed with the, the first steering committee members uh, was gonna go too fast. Um, so rather we wanna focus on relationship and trust building. Uh, we had a retreat in the summer where we could all come together um, in just providing space for, for community um, voice and context to be shared in our different meetings as opposed to moving fast through an agenda. Uh, we did change my, as far as the process goes, changed my role. Uh, it was clear given the conversations that I was not the one to lead uh, the community engagement process, what we called uh, community listening sessions, but rather the pivot that the steering committee made was to seek community leaders to lead that and other parts of the project. Um, that led to uh, then hiring Vanessa in Black Space Oklahoma to do racial equity training at that retreat I mentioned. That was the first step towards moving towards uh, community-led um, consulting and planning. Um, and, and that is hopefully the start of much more to come for the collaborative. Um, the last thing I'll say is with outcomes, um, that was an important, some of some nuance here, but a really important pivot as well. The original task, as I mentioned earlier, was for the steering committee to develop a vision for the property. But pretty soon that, that came up that, well, why is the steering committee getting ahead of the community in developing a vision? Um, and so we, we walked that back quite a bit uh, appropriately and said that we'd rather we would come up with a collaborative framework. And in that collaborative framework, um, steering committee members could articulate their interest for the property, kind of in both general and specific. Um, and also we designed like what's the collaborative process is gonna be using going forward, what are the principles that are gonna guide conversations, those sort of things, but not a specific vision for the property. Um, and just to drill down on one example of, of how we kind of worked that so everybody felt okay about it. Um, the specific interest of the property that steering committee members came up with were things like urban agriculture, environmental education, arts programs. And so rather than say, this is what we want to see happen, we just, are, we just said, okay, here are steering committee members and organizations that can support these uses of the property. And then after there's a community process to determine what's going to, what's going to happen at the property, we can look back at that resource to see who might be able to support it. Um, so really tried to kind of flip it around in that regard. Yeah, and I'll just add that I think the financial resources are such a critical component of this work because too often you have people come into a community, they extract information, they put labor on community members, but there really is no honoring or recognition of their contributions, of their expertise, and of their time. And you see that practice not just happening in Oklahoma City, but just all over. You know, this marginalized community needs support. An entity comes in, they're paid, they're compensated to come in, they're extracting information, and there's really no, you know, position or shared power in that. And so I think the committee, you know, 
working to find the resources to pay for training to learn, you know, to pause, stop, and learn, to find and identify resources to pay for engagement. You know, the, the committee started off asking some of the Black members of the committee to volunteer a lot of this work when this is a full-time job, you know, engaging and interacting with the community and collecting data and being able to translate that from a cultural lens, that's an expertise and that's a, that's a skill. And too often, again, it's not respected as a skill in these kind of spaces. And so I think the committee transitioning that and finding the resources and coming together and saying, okay, this is important to us and we're going to bring in the financial resources to hire the skill, the expertise, and the capacity needed to do this with excellence, I think is a, a good model that a lot of different efforts need to follow instead of, again, continuing these practices where you're extracting from a community, but you're not compensating anyone for their time and you're, you're not even acknowledging who they are and how they contributed to the work and the final deliverable. Yes, thank you for that. Um, all of you, Vanessa, underscore your point around compensating uh, members of community for their engagement when other people around the table are there when they're in their day job and using air quotes getting paid for their time that they're participating. So really appreciate that very specific point and all of the specific examples all of you are giving um, in your responses. Um, Vanessa, tell us a little bit more about the, um, the Black Space Manifesto and how that has supported the work and what it looks like in practice. Yeah, so the Black Space Manifesto is a set of principles that we follow as urbanists in this work to really keep ourselves rooted in the intention of working alongside community members and holding ourselves accountable to how we serve communities. So Black Space Oklahoma is a chapter of the Black Space National Collective, which has different affiliate chapters in about four different cities. And we are a collective of individuals who represent the Black community, who have these built environment backgrounds, who are coming together to reimagine new ways that we can approach how we serve Black communities through our professions. Um, especially, again, kind of to my point earlier, recognizing the harm that our professions have inflicted on communities we want to reckon with that and disrupt those traditional practices that have been of disservice and have been a harm to our communities. And so the manifesto was created by leaders of the National Collective to really, again, keep us grounded and rooted in intention and being thoughtful and collaborative and holding ourselves accountable in a way where we are not approaching Black communities like we just know everything because we're Black, but respecting that these experiences and identities come from a diaspora, and it's important to be sensitive and thoughtful about how we approach this work, even though many of us are from the Black, we are from the Black community, we can't just assume that we know what's best for every Black community. And so the set of principles, um, all of them resonate with me, even outside of this work, <laughs> I find myself leaning on the tool, even in like other types of situations in my life. But um, I think the tool in being able to share this with the committee really gave us a set of values to center our efforts on and, and think about how we can approach this with this new process of making sure we're being inclusive to community members. And so there are multiple principles, but I think the one that was the most prominent in this process was moving at the speed of trust. And although there you know, was a timeline for the work and deliverables were, you know, in, uh, primarily set in stone and, you know, we had to 
there was an effort to be able to move across the timeline. I think it was great how we were able to say, you know what, let's let's stop. You know, we, we can just stop right here and rethink how we go about this because we'd rather build with the community than harm and disrupt trust even further. So I think moving at the speed of trust was a good practice that we leaned on in this process to make sure that we weren't causing the community more in further harm. Thank you for that. And I'm curious if there are other principles that bubble up for you, Sean, or for Matt, as having really informed the work. The one that stuck with me at least the most that informed them, that informed a lot of the work that we're doing is the principles of sharing and listening to stories. And that is something that is really important with a lot of the conversations we have, not only with um, in the hearing committee and community members and, and anyone else, but also between steering committee members, all have different viewpoints. The history of this area and history of the of Oklahoma City as a whole and how what and what impacts there are. So it's really important to think about that. Each person has their own extremely valid reasons for what they do and extremely valid like ideas and thoughts and processes for doing whatever it is. And it's sharing and listening to all of that that really has shaped the way we communicate with each other and with the public, which not only slows it down, but it has made it much more valuable yeah, I think I, to your point there, Sean, uh, one thing I remember is as we got into this work with everyone, the story of there had been a few years before a proposed development on the Edwards property, a very substantial um, mixed use, big developer, big development. Um, and we learned that it had been defeated, uh, that the city ultimately did not pass it. And part of that story that I don't think everybody knew, I certainly didn't know, was that the community had really come together and, and formed opposition to it, feeling fearing what would happen and that it was being imposed upon um, the community. Um, so there was a sense of, of collective power there. And, and so I think, you know, among other things, here is an opportunity with the Edwards Property Collaborative to bring power together in a, in a proactive, constructive way, as opposed to just a reactive way, which I know it's often felt like to the community. So yes, having that honoring the, the past and the history of the community, I think is a principle that has been really important to the collaborative. Um, and then just, just trying to have good conversations around it. Um, Vanessa mentioned like definitely some of the, the Black Space Manifesto principles the collaborative adopted. Um, and, and one principle that we also used um, for conversations, uh, two kind of uh, tandem principles was assume good intentions and take responsibility for impact. And we definitely had to utilize that when we had some, some tensions and some uh, feelings that you know, were, were people feeling kind of bad about some conversations. And, and we were able to kind of bring it around to say, um, you know, and I tried to share it too, that we may have good intentions, but our impact is still very real. And it may be because of some bias that we have that we're, we weren't aware of. It may be because we just hadn't put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Um, so that was an ongoing challenge. But when I, when I think of principles, we've got the broader principles around how we approach the overall project, but we also have the principles about how do we talk to each other effectively across lived experiences, across different identities, 
um, and not, you know, and build something better and, and more understanding. You've talked about some of the challenges early on and how those contributed to a bit of a course correction to greater community authority. Are there any other challenges that you experience where you might have some reflections or lessons for others on the line for their work to reflect on? So I will say that this has continued to be a dilemma for the collaborative. Um, it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing where because the, of the nature of this collaborative, there is this very large you know, property with a pretty big price tag and it's not, it's, it's in you know, the state owns it, as I mentioned earlier. Um, there was concern about going forward with community engagement before the property was acquired by someone who would honor the community engagement and the community input. So the collaborative has been a bit stuck there. Um, I, I think, you know, once an entity comes forward and is perhaps aligned with the steering committee, aligned with, with the community and says, we're going to you know, buy this property, things could really take off. I hope we've laid a foundation for that to be possible. Um, but I think patience, we talked about patience in the process. Well, just patience in getting to this next big step is tough. Um, but it does, you know, in, in the meantime, um, adequately engaging and, and paying for services from the community, you know, have yet to happen. And I think, you know, if, if, it, if something doesn't happen soon, that's going to be, that, that could be more, you know, prob problematic, but, but this is really outside of the control of, of most people in the collaborative. So, it's more just a dilemma and I don't know, I think there's a lot of great people working in on this collaborative. So it's just maybe being transparent about it and talking about this um, and just keeping moving it forward. Is there any other advice that you would like to share with folks who are listening that might be either in early stages of their collaborative or in a place where they too are considering pressing pause and doing a bit of a, um, uh, course corruption, for lack of a better term, toward greater community authority? I think, you know, it's so important that you have a relationship cultivated in the communities that you're trying to work in. And, you know, I think in this work that we do, we are usually working on a deadline or a timeline or sort of working towards this end result that we don't make time for connection. And, it's almost kind of like that aspect of community work is trivialized or diminished in, you know, contrast or in comparison to other elements of like getting the project done when really that is like the foundation of being able to do a successful project is that you have buy-in, you have relationship and you have trust with the community. And so I think with any collaborative um, best practices, really trying to create intentional time to cultivate that and even, you know, and people are familiar with each other, create space for people to connect, to learn about each other, understand each other's intentions and how they work and their personalities, because I think that can help prepare the group for a journey ahead of challenges, of high points, low points, and all of the different <laughs> dynamics that happen when people are coming together. So uh, I think making space and time for relationship building is important and making sure that that has also made time for the community as well, and that you have representation on in your group for the communities that you're trying to work in and serve. Yeah, no, definitely. I've I've learned so much from working with Vanessa and Sean and members of this collaborative, and 
I think everything Vanessa said is just really important there. And it almost, you know, in terms of there's no right way or, or perfect sequence for any of this work, it's messy. Uh, but it does, it does kind of raise the issue of where do you start? And so you have, uh, maybe it's not, not as concrete as this particular collaborative where there's an actual property and the future of the property being discussed. Um, but whatever it may be, whatever community it involves, you know, doing as much as possible to start there first, right? So like in this ideal sense, the first people coming together are community members and community leaders. And then following from that is, okay, we want to build something out of this and we need certain institutional support. We need certain funding. So cultivating the right funders and institutional partners from that. And then that can lead to, you know, are there, are there gaps in what we have? Do we need um, an outside trainer, an outside consultant to bring in some perspective from somewhere else to bring in a certain skill set. But it starts, the base, the, the, the assets, it starts with are the community at the very start. Um, and, and I think, you know, knowing what Vanessa's working on with some other projects and some others around Oklahoma City, um, that that is starting to happen uh, and more and more. And, and I really, um, you know, that whole dynamic that Sean and Vanessa speak so well about, about things being imposed on the community from coming from outside. I think we have an opportunity now to start turning that around. Um, and then with all that being said, the best laid plans never work out. So just kind of underlining what, you know, the, the concept about being flexible, being, being willing to throw out the structure, process, the roles, whatever it may be, and, and completely re-pivot as necessary. Um, but then once you re-pivot, I think it is really important to be clear about roles and outcomes, okay? Because I know we would have lost a lot of people in this process if we said, okay, we're getting rid of the vision and we're just, we're just gonna come up with a couple of ideas. Well, I think a lot of the original partners might've said, well, there's just not much here that I'm contributing towards. Um, so you have to just be real clear about like where are we headed in this particular phase or you know, checking with everybody, does this make sense? Does this feel good? Do you feel like this is a good use of your time? I don't also add, you know, I think um, Katie and Matt, what you all did so well was kind of holding space for all of the different <laughs> perspectives and emotions that people were experiencing through this process. There were some, some intense moments throughout this work together, and I think you all did such a good job being patient, allowing for that to be aired out, you know, affirming how people were feeling, and being fluid enough to adjust and pivot, you know, sometimes when people air grievances or barriers in feeling comfortable or being able to collaborate fully or show up fully, I think sometimes it's kind of like, okay, thanks for sharing your feelings, and it's just on business per usual, but I think Matt and Katie did such a great job, like, opening up space for people to lead, to be in these positions, to stop, pivot, rewind, go forward, and not just push the process forward because that's what they were called to do. Um, something else I think would be um, a really great practice for people who are trying to build up community authority is creating space not only for the relationship cultivation, but also for education. And that's something that we are doing through open design here locally and trying to make sure that people understand process. You know, a lot of these misperceptions and distrust and Resistance comes from not really understanding how a process works and how it's going to impact them directly, how it's going to impact the community directly. And also on the flip side of that, with professionals, you know, I use that term loosely coming into communities, 
you know, there is a lack of understanding from their perspective as well and understanding the cultural context of the community of what, what are the barriers, what are the points of tension, and how they should be able to navigate how they approach serving these communities and working in communities. So I think creating space from how do we learn about process, how can community members learn about process so they can show up fully and participate from an informed perspective, a truly informed perspective where they can speak and represent their needs fully and represent their, their concerns fully, and how can people coming into communities really understand cultural context and understand these spatial, social, historical dynamics in the community. So when they're building or creating or planning, they're protecting that and honoring it in the work that they're doing, and they're using it as a tool. You don't have to come in and rethink and reinvent the wheel. The wheel has already been created. You just don't know about it. <laughs> People work outside of systems and in communities every single day with little to no resources and make it work with little to nothing. And Northeast OKC has a lot of assets that people are simply are not aware of because the stories are untold or people just don't even make time to learn about it because they're coming to the community and not necessarily, you know, with this project, but in a lot of cases, people approach black communities, marginalized communities from a deficit approach. They don't, they don't think, oh, there's an asset here. There's life-giving assets to this community because there's challenges. They just kind of come in with this lens of, I got to come in and fix. So you're missing opportunities and tools and data and information that is already existing in that community because you came in thinking that you knew what was best. And so I think, again, making time for shared learning for communities, members to learn who have been disenfranchised and excluded from process and for people coming into communities to learn from the community, I think is critical. Right on. Thank you, Vanessa. That's a, a masterclass right there in, <laughs> in five minutes or less than that. Um, I would just love to ask what you all see as the next steps for the work. Where might you see it growing and what do you, where do you think things are headed? For the last few weeks and basically months, we've been um, working in smaller groups on different aspects of it. For example, the acquisition, the community engagement in different um, spheres of this larger project. And we are going to start moving, coming back together, finding out what each group has found, um, go sort of convening on what information each group has found, and sort of taking the time to move in a direction to actually push something because we we have this weird um, balance, I guess you could say, or catch 22 of do we ask the community, what would you like here first, or do we acquire the land and then ask, which is very, it seems very simple, but it's sort of like a chicken and the egg kind of thing because in many communities like this, they are used to being um, asked something, got, like they get their opinion and then nothing comes out of it. And so you get used to not really having a voice because when they do ask you, it doesn't end up getting added. It's a very sensitive thing, but I, I know it's hard, but because we can't make everyone happy, we're gonna have to pick one direction, go in first. That's, we're gonna have to come together and actually figure out which direction we're going to go in first and choose that and press forward. Thank you, Sean. Well, Matt, Vanessa, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening to such a important conversation with the wisdom that uh, Sean, Vanessa, and Matt brought in today. So thank you all. 
And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes of this podcast. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting you with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.